Load. These are lessons from the front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. So how did you end up in Special Forces? I mean, because you didn't start out there. So how did you get to the SF community? I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Um, and so my high school best friend and I, he's like, let's go to the gym and start working out. And uh, so we went to the Y and he's just doing laps. Um, and he's super muscular. He was an offensive lineman, numerous college offers to go play football. And I'm 160 soaking wet. And he's going down and back and down and back. And I go down one time and come up and it was, it was like I just ran 10 miles. I almost didn't make it to the end of the pool. So I remember kind of floating there and there was another guy that was training for the SEALs that was getting ready to go to Annapolis. And uh, I might need to find a new job, a new profession. I think maybe the Army would be a better fit. Um, so I got into West Point shortly thereafter. That was, I was locked in. And then I saw Black Hawk Down and was like, I want to be an Army Ranger. That's what I want to do. So how long, how long were you doing the ADA before you went into Special Forces? And how did you how did you get the opportunity to get selected for Special Forces? Um, so I graduated in May of 2010 mm -hmm. uh, from West Point, and then I submitted my packet towards the end of 2013. So as I was a, I think I was a first lieutenant at the time. Okay. Um, and so you kind of submit a packet, you do language scores, you know, you write an essay, uh, you have kind of a little background about yourself. You do the classic PT scores and things like that. Um, we talk about kind of that jack of all trades, master of none, but then also having, you know, wear the long hair and the slick back, which in the beers is a lot of SF guys know, but when to turn it on, when to be dirty and when to be clean. I was the only special forces ADA person I met officer or enlisted in the qualification course. So our training of SF that was two years. And then when I was out in special operations, um, after earning my green beret, I only met one other ADA person. So explain to, to people what partner force, I mean, because when you talk to somebody in the green beret community, all, all you ever hear is partner force. I mean, well, I shouldn't say all you ever hear. It is a very, very common theme. So explain to, to people what exactly that means. Yeah, so the partner force is a key part of what Special Forces is. It was founded in kind of the OSS days in World War II of kind of working through the population. OSS being the predecessor of the CIA. Correct. Okay. And then they branched off and SF kind of have an, had an infantry unit that, mm -hmm. that banded off from that as well. And so we, our origins from the Green Berets came from, from a lot of that and the Jedburg team specifically okay. that dropped in. Um, but again, the Jedburg teams were three-man teams that would go in. They'd have somebody from the local population, normally an army officer um, that was from the states that knew, had language training. Um, and then I believe the third one was a communications guy. And so with three people, you can't do a lot, but you're a force multiplier, which is what you see a lot of special operations today. Um, and how do you do that with working with the local population, finding out what they want, what are their goals, aligning with them, and then what resources they need and what can we help them with? We would work with surrogate forces more so or partner force, and they would be in the lead because this was their, their country, kind of their mission. We would train them, um, and we did train, advise, assist. And I think a key part of our success is I've had phenomenal intelligence sergeants. They drive a key portion of the mission, if not the most, of where are we going to go. Um, and what are we going to do? You can campaign and everything else, but you know, um, what's there, what's in that area, where are we going? So 
we would have our own presentations of this is what we're thinking. The team would sit around and again, nobody was too big to say, oh, well, I think we should do this or challenge. Everybody could challenge anything with, hey, this is what we found. This is how we think we're going to attack this. We would all, we called it a murder board. We'd all go and kind of, hey, this is what we think we should do here. This is what, you know, Camo from medical perspective, everybody brought that flavor of planning in. We'd plan as a team, we'd approve it, put together a plan, and then we'd push it up to higher. Say, this is what we want to do. What are your thoughts on this? So there's complete autonomy, and with that comes responsibility. And you have to have a certain caliber of person. And to your point, why special forces and kind of circling completely back on that, I loved that aspect that I had this capability or this caliber of person that wanted to go and do this was specially selected that they were highly responsible, highly driven. You know, you could drop a couple of, and it's very common to do two, three, two, three men of an ODA or women in a certain location and just leave them. And they do their own operations and accomplish their own mission just because they're so self-sustaining. All right. So, so you ended up in uh, Afghanistan. You were part of the 10th group which is the 10th Special Forces Group, uh, the originals, Correct. as I understand. So did you have any say in that, or is that just luck of the draw? And so when I was submitting my packet, uh, there, came a, there came a process where you took the language test. And so I had taken Arabic at West Point, um, French in kind of high school, and some Latin. Um, so I had a, a good language kind of background um, and exposure, if you would. So I knew I wanted to go to 10th group um, there in Europe. I, I've always wanted to live in Colorado. My first station was El Paso, so kind of the opposite end of the spectrum as far as temperature. Okay, now wait a minute. You said in Europe. Well, um, so 10th group is regionally aligned with Europe. Okay, but you're based out of Colorado. Based out of Colorado, okay. Fort Carson, Colorado. And so I really wanted to be stationed there, kind of work over in Europe. I've always enjoyed Euro trips and otherwise. I don't do well with the heat. So that kind of excluded numerous countries there okay. um, in the jungle. So a 10th group was basically it, uh, if you kind of narrow that down. And so as I was looking through this, there were, you know, 10th group was doing Africa at the time, but they were, they were aligning the groups back to where 10th group was getting ready to take back over only Europe. Africa was getting ready to be passed off. And so they were still teaching French which was Africa. And so I kind of had it in high school. I was like, okay, I have a little exposure. I'd be good at it if I put that. And so I remember, again, the recruiting, coming back to them, the recruiting office was like, well, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to 10th group and I want to deploy to Afghanistan because I have never been and that's why I signed up post 9-11 to serve and kind of you know, do my part. And so he said, uh, well, if you take the test, you don't want to do really well because they'll give you Russian. So he goes, you know, if I was gaming the system, I wouldn't do too well, but I'd pass. I know that's kind of a hard thing, but, you know, about 50-50 of the questions, right? And so he goes, and you can take it as many times as you want. So I went in and was kind of like, what's the worst thing that happens? I take it again in two weeks. So I got just above the passing score. So I went back to him and I said, are you sure this is going to work? Because I was worried about getting disqualified. When all the other officers might score really well, sure. I do really bad. And they said, oh, they don't, they don't even worry about that until the later phases. I have no idea to this day about how the selection process works, but I got in, I went to 10th group, I went to Afghanistan. Interesting. Yep. Well, and as far as other people gaming the system, I can assure you you're not the first because <laughs> I did the same thing to get into uh, flight school. Ended up not taking that contract, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I answered the question the way I, I thought you were really supposed to answer it. And they're like, no, 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 no. They want aggressive 
guys in the cockpit. I went, all right, well, let me answer this thing for real then. Yes, I will speed on occasion. So yeah, no, that, that's, that's very interesting. So you learned very quickly to game the system to get what you needed. Yep. The, and it, again, to your point, you just mentioned that the test within the test of kind mm -hmm. of, you know, when you're in the special forces, again, we talked about that responsibility. You know, if you, if you go and Hey, you're black and white, you might not be able to accomplish certain missions. And then, you know, but if you're also super loose and fast with the rules, then that's not good either. Good point. So it was this perfect medium of kind of right in between. And some of the best training that I received in the qualification course was, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but, uh, cart village, cultural awareness, resist, um, resiliency training. So they put us in all these different, you know, um, scenarios and without ruining it in case anybody ever goes, they were kind of regionally aligned, you know, stereotypes or things that you might encounter. And I thought that it was, it was a little blown out of the water and that they were exaggerated big time, but I encountered uh, more than I thought or heard about them happening more than I thought. Um, personally, I know of the seven, eight different scenarios that they set up, I encountered over half of them um, and was put in those gray areas. So it was fantastic training. Um, but at the same time, they need somebody that, that understands how to play within the boundaries and not lose yourself as a leader Sure. in the meantime. So you went to Afghanistan for the first time in 17? Uh, 17, 18. Correct. 17, 18. Okay. Um, and then you went again uh, about a year later in 19. 2019. Okay. The first time you go to Afghanistan, where are you operating and what's the mission? So we went to Kandahar, and this is when I was with my ODA with Special Forces. And an ODA is a 12-man unit. Correct. Okay. Of, made up of numerous, we mentioned the MOSs, numerous MOSs okay. um, and 12 men. And again, we operate in different size regions. But I specifically, we went to Kandahar, which is where um, our AOB, or Advanced Operating Base, was, which was basically the company headquarters of SF. So there were about two, three teams that were located there that had different partner forces with different mission sets. And what, what was the mission? The mission was to very simply bring the Taliban to the negotiating table um, through our, our combat operations. So it was probably written something along the line, through all means necessary, but what it meant was punch them in the mouth until they... Till they beg for correct within the laws of you know the rules of war okay. uh in geneva do everything you can to to destabilize the taliban in the in the areas that they currently operate and so as a as a special forces uh oda um you guys are working with the partner force the afghanistan um uh commandos. military commandos and you are looking for any way possible to support them and exploit the weaknesses of the Af or of the uh, the Taliban to bring them to the table. What did you find to be the most difficult aspect of working with the partner force? It was the stigma that we had been there operating with them for 20 years and that they thought we'd always be there. And so they were reliant on us doing as much as possible I think that there were certain people that kind of understood it because me personally, at least, and, and I had almost zero deployments compared to a lot of the guys in special forces. Um, I felt like there was an uptick in a lot of new interpreters. And I think they started to see a little writing on the wall with just the political pieces and things like that. Obviously the interpreters have a certain level of intelligence to learn mm -hmm. the language and otherwise, um, because they knew they had to get out of there 
fairly soon. And they were trying to, because we had interpreters that had worked with the U.S. You know, 15, 20 years. Um, their services as honorable as mine, if not more. You know, what they did for the fight. And granted, it was their country, um, and you could argue that point, but it just, yeah, it was a, it was difficult to kind of get that message across. Their, their service was every bit as, as, as important. Their service was every bit as, as notable. Um, I mean, tell me what they, tell me what they did for you guys. Why was it such a notable performance by them? So, um, they were truly, you know, there's, uh, interpreters, there's translators, you know, a lot of people think when I showed up as well, um, a, a little ignorant on my part, but I thought all oh, the same thing. So explain to people, what is the difference? So translator, again, we sit here and we're talking in another language and somebody spits out what the other language is. Um, an interpreter would be, Hey, he said this, what he means by that is probably X, Y, Z. And then I've seen this before. They could put a little, you know, the really, really good ones would put a flavor on it. For instance, hey, this commander said this, blah, 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 blah. I think he's telling you the truth. Or, hey, I don't think he's telling you the truth. That doesn't make sense. And we've been here a couple times before. I would be careful of this, this, you know, police officer. And, and sometimes that's a decision point for me as a commander of, hey, we're going to do this or this, or the team sergeant navigating the forces. Hey, I don't trust this guy. He said to go here. That could be an ambush. We're going to reroute, you know, our elements and we're going to push him over this way. So it's almost an analysis. It really is. Um, so again, they're worth their weight in gold. And the good ones were, you know, hoarded. You didn't let the really good ones go away. And even more so of kind of what did that mean? And even, even beyond that, you know, I had numerous interpreters that had been shot numerous times you know, and still kept going back for more. And it wasn't like a money thing, you know, they had kind of made it and they could have moved on. I think they really thought what they were doing and giving back and doing the right thing, working with U.S. forces. Um, I'll take it a step further than that as well. We were super lucky to have worked with a group over there and specifically special forces would work with them. Um, and they were basically like an EOD group. They were local um, EOD being explosive, explosive ordnance disposal. And yeah. they were primarily used kind of to help us with finding um, IDs and staying a little bit gray and generic here with kind of not sharing names or anything else. I'm, sh I'm sure I can share it, but just, just to be sure. But, but those gentlemen were from a tribe that has always been under the knife of the Taliban. They hated them. And so they were one of the few tribes that we were able to wholeheartedly reach out to and trust to bring into the fold tell them our missions. They lived on the SF camps with us, um, all of them. Now, if any one of those guys were to contact me, I would, I would do anything to get them over here and get their families to safety. And those guys specifically, because there were the, there were the interpreters and there were those guys saved numerous lives. There were numerous occasions just with my experience in the couple teams that I worked with on deployment that when the commandos and the, the partner force would sometimes get scared, um, and not all of them, but a majority of them, they would step up in front of the U.S. forces to make sure that they were protected. Um, and there were numerous ambushes where they saved American lives willingly, knowing that they could have booked it and ran as well with the partner force and been safe. Um, they was, was that common that the partner force would just take off? Kind of. It depended on what partner force you used. Um, and there were there was a full spectrum of, of units that would operate over there. So kind of you wouldn't get that everywhere. But again, we talk about longevity. Um, they know that once we leave, they're going to keep going in there. So that was kind of, I think, a survival tactic. 
that, that you would see a lot of them kind of let us remain in the front while they kind of. Is there, a, is there a time you can recall where that happened where you thought this is not going the way it was intended to go? So um, I don't mean this to sound braggy or boastful, and I, I think it's more bragging on other people, so it's, it's very easy to do. But again, super fortunate to have a phenomenal team. Um, my first deployment, we had two Silver Star winners, one being my team sergeant and the other one being our senior weapons sergeant. Um, and what had happened was the commandos had pulled back and there were a couple injured commandos in this compound. And so they had pulled back in the, and I'll never forget, it was, hey, uh, chuck grenades over there and kill the Taliban. And we had told them, hey, we know we've, we've done a head count. There's a couple guys still in there. They're somewhere in there. We don't want to. And they said, a, co a couple of your guys. A couple of no, commandos. commandos. A couple of commandos. The commandos okay. were down. All the American forces, again, they were kind of the partner forces in the front. And uh, they had pulled back and they said, chuck them over there. They're dead anyways. And so it was just a mentality kind of, of how life was looked at. Um, and we were like, nobody gets left behind. And not to be cliche and hit full spectrum. With That's Black not cliche. Down, but nobody gets left behind. And that was our mentality. Afghan, American, it doesn't matter. We're not, we're not over here. We can't say that we train, advise, assist, but yet we're going to allow you to do that. So the American forces, uh, we led an element, my team sergeant and otherwise, and they went in there and one of the commandos was right in front of a machine gun nest. Um, and they just kind of the classic, like baiting. Um, and so when they went in there to get, there were, there was a grenade fight and a bunch of machine gun fire. Um, and so my team sergeant made it out. He had a couple frags. One of the frags missed his aorta by a couple millimeters. Um, and then another guy went and grabbed and dragged him back while a couple guys held security and all of them got fragmentation. So, okay, hold on. I gotta, I gotta repeat this back because what I just heard was, okay, there's a, there's a barrier between us and, and the commandos. There were two commandos that, that were left behind. It was a compound wall. We had breached it okay. and gone in and the commandos took fire and two of them were injured. And you said they were in front of a machine gun nest of the Taliban. In the in the corner and kind of the horse stall, they had set up a machine gun nest and then there were a couple other other ones in another corner of the compound. So they had set up a real complex ambush. Interesting. Okay, so a complex ambush. And at this point, the 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 commando, one of the commandos you're going after. Uh, I'm assuming was in defilade just enough to, to be safe, but it was pinned down by the machine gun. So I don't know the full story again, wasn't in there, but he was injured. We didn't know at the time if he was dead or alive and they didn't have radios. You know, we'd yelled out and didn't hear anything, but, um, we thought it was more so of a baiting maneuver because they knew we wouldn't leave him in there and he was, he was left behind and obviously we weren't going to leave him. So they knew that if they just waited and, to the point that why I think that's possible, we encountered that numerous times. The tactical patience of the Taliban is is almost impressive to a point as a tactical leader. Really? That's the, I think that's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that. Because, again, continuing on the story, the next deployment we had another, and that was where, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to that with who are you carrying. But um, Mike B. Riley and James Johnson we lost on our team, and it was because the Taliban commander had, had let kind of the soldiers come in, the American and part for soldiers, and had waited until, you know, we had we had cleared through the objective and thought we got everyone. He even allowed us to kind of shoot at him, but it wasn't until the last moment that he opened up fire because he knew that was the time that he could maximize his effects. So, which is something in the American military that we do. So can we, can we back up a little bit? And I, I, wanna, I wanna talk about 
these these people that you lost. Um, set the stage. Where where were you? So um, for my team personally, um, we lost we lost uh, teammates on the second trip. So 2019, um, we were in Tarancott. Uh, we had been in Kandahar that first time, and then we went up to Tarancott the second time. So um, I always called it our kind of ODA 2.0. We had phenomenal guys the first time, and then that team sergeant that I had just mentioned did a phenomenal job recruiting, and we, we really came in with all wheels running the second trip of guys that really wanted to work hard, row together, uh, row hard, as we kind of talked about before. And so we had had successful operations. Um, we kind of had a lot of momentum going into this one operation. And uh, we had the green zones. It's kind of something where they know that we can't use our aerial assets to kind of see down through the trees, see heat signatures and et cetera. Um, and the Taliban had just set just a, a perfect scenario that, you know, it, it, most, most times that you wouldn't see coming. And, um, you know, we did what we thought was right on the ground. And, you know, I, I play that over and over in my head as well. You know, who are you carrying? I carry that every day. Um, and I wish things would have unfolded different, but I, at the time, I didn't question a single bit of it. Um, and so Michael B. Riley, who was a master sergeant on our team, um, he was a sergeant first class at the time, but he was our senior echo. He had already been picked to be a team sergeant because of his capabilities. And then James Johnson was a EOD attachment. Um, we talked about the explosive ordnance disposal, and he was attached to our team. Um, and so both of them were doing exactly what they should have been doing at the time. Um, and just were, were they out ahead, were you guys on a patrol and were they out ahead of others we were going out to get a high value target um okay. and we knew he was in that general area um and so we knew that he was probably in the green zone um and that we we decided uh that we would search just a little bit more and it was kind of right there at the edge of the bubble where we were about to call it quits and kind of hey the risk has gotten a little high we're starting to get into some thicker green zones etc um, they thought they saw some movement. And so sure enough, we we're like, Hey, let's, let's explore this. Um, and so we did. And so we talked about, Hey, we'd have to kind of waste a lot of time. If we pulled back, they could potentially get away. Um, at the time it, it sounded like a sound judgment and I, I made the call. Um, and sure enough, they, they had an ambush laid for us. And, uh, we've, we've played this scenario a thousand times over in our head, whether it was, you know, the night vision goggles, we talk about Afghan night vision, which that they don't, they don't use night vision goggles. So any little bit of light they pick up on pretty quickly and there's no, you know, lights out in the population. So we think that maybe they might've seen the American night vision goggles from the, the corners of their eyes. Um, and they were, you know, of all the casualties we took, there were only two Americans. So. So it was Michael B. Riley and James Johnson. So Johnston, excuse me. Walk me through the. You were out there with them. Correct. Walk me through what goes through your mind as the leader of the element. And you're on a mission. And we all know that missions, I mean, unfortunately, casualties in war are a part of it. Walk me through what goes through your mind when you start taking rounds like that. Do you automatically assume the worst? So I think we come into that preparation. Uh, you always know that when you're out there playing soldier, who he who lives by the sword can die by the sword. Um, and kind of that mentality. I'll never forget it. 
um, as long as I live because it was a very distinct um, 7.62 round um, and it was machine gun fire. Um, and we would have lost more members, but the gun jammed on the sixth or seventh machine gun round. Um, but it was different and you have that, you don't want to cloud the radio. I think the worst thing you can do is start, what was that? What's going on? Like what, give us a status report. So we gave about, you know, a solid minute to see what was going on. And I've never been more nervous in my life. Cause in my heart, I probably knew what it was. Cause I knew there wasn't a 240 on that element. Um, which is our 7.62, and, and the rounds just sound very different for those that don't shoot a lot. It's a very, it's a much heavier round, and it's a much larger shot sound that comes out. Um, and so at that time, it's mission next. I, I thought, God, I hope they're okay. Um, and you know, what can I do but stay off the radio and then mentally prepare that if I need to call in a, a medevac, where is it going to go? Um, and so that's kind of. I think that they do a good job in our training course of kind of filtering that out and making sure that, you know, you're able to kind of process that because um, that emotional stability. I, I saw quite a few people deal with loss um, as a special forces and even special operations. And I just think across the board, they do such a fantastic job of whether training it into us or kind of selecting us because of that, because we were all able to keep a pretty even head. And when we got back to base, I think uh, the emotion started to pour over. But at the time, we all kind of remained mission focused at the time. Were they killed instantly? They were. I did not know that at the time. So the first person to kind of break radio was our other Silver Star winner um, who reacted to that. Um, phenomenal. He was our junior weapons guy at the time. And, uh, and so he came over and I heard him huffing, puffing and knew instantly something was wrong. So uh, my team sergeant, without hesitation, started moving guys around to get over there as soon as possible. I was up on the hill, um, and it was really hard pill to swallow because I instantly, the first thing you want to do, we talked about being a team and, mm -hmm. and leading from the front. Um, I wanted to grab my bag and my antenna and, and sprint over there as fast as I could. And obviously there were you know, uh, considerations with EOD, and there could be IEDs out there uh, or improvised explosive devices. And so uh, I knew that my job at that time was to make sure that I was prepared to get them out of there as soon as possible. And if I moved, I wouldn't be able to send up the radio transmission as quick. So I, I maintained where I was um, up on the hill, any support, and just prepared that nine line because I knew it was probably coming. And sure enough, so I had to send one shortly thereafter. They were both killed instantly. Um, but at the time, I wanted to make sure we got them out of there. We got them home as soon as possible. How long before you heard the rounds go off before you understood that they were killed? Um, I think it was a matter of about 20 minutes. So we talked about the, the mission coming first. Um, we let a lot of things play out. We were moving pieces, kept the radio clear. That's one of those things where if they had been KIA or wounded in action, I wanted to treat it exactly the same. Um, and make sure we got them out of there. Now there's risk to aircraft, um, which again comes into consideration. Um, and I understood that as well, but really wanted to make sure that all the pieces that needed to start moving got moved before I got that information to shoot up to hire. Um, and that's something that they require. Um, you know, is it wounded? Is it KIA, et cetera? But 
Um, at the time, I felt like down the, the list of priority information of what had happened, who had it happened to, what support did they need, you know, are there any air assets, is the fight still going on? Um, there were a lot of other questions going on, um, and working my way down to that one uh, was kind of down the pecking order, if you will, for me personally. So I'm assuming after they, uh, after the first volley, you know, you said six to eight rounds, and then the then the machine gun jammed. Uh, I'm assuming a firefight proceeded from there. Yeah, you heard shots go back and forth. Um, and if there was any way that they could have made it, I wanted to make sure that I got the bird in there as soon as as soon as possible. So that was where my my uh, mind shifted. Now, to your point, if you're trying to work through, was the was it just single shots and then nothing? There was back and forth, um, and you did hear kind of that shooting back and forth. So it became it was it went from an ambush to a firefight. Correct. Inside of that 20 minutes, you were able to um, you're able to squelch the uh, the threat. Uh, I'm assuming at that point they they tucked and ran. Um, which, you know, th those are the guerrilla tactics that they use. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was. And, and now I realize answering that 20 minutes seems like an eternity. And maybe it was just because in that moment, it felt like 10 seconds was 10 minutes. Um, if I actually went back and looked through the call log, which is now long lost and in, in secret, you know, information sphere, but it, it could have been the matter of five, six minutes before I pushed. But that it seemed like 20 is what It seemed saying. like 20 minutes at the time. So... And that 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 has to be hard, when you're in a when you're in the in a position of leadership, you put yourself in the position where you felt like you could best control the mission, and that doesn't put you out point, you know, running a, you know, just running with your uh, your weapon out out on point. So you put yourself in the best position possible, and then you hear the firefight open. It's got to be a helpless feeling. Yeah. 100 percent it was uh it was awful because there was absolutely nothing you can do you always kind of prepare um and i've got to throw a shout out to my team they always used to call my truck when i would be out driving cheap seats because i would always be up on the hill sending the radio transmissions and i had to you know that wasn't down in the, the thick of it but it absolutely killed me you know you would expect maybe they would try to come in from behind and i always told the guys make sure you always have rear security but um when you're up there and that event happens um so hard because you just want to sprint and and i know the other units that were closer that needed to get over there anyways i think a lot of them did just that um disregard for their own personal safety and potential ieds they just took off so when you get back to the base um you learn that they're kia what what next um that was the new mission it was a hard mission it was a mission that i didn't expect but um that was the that was the new mission, honoring them, getting them back safe. Um, and you could say, hey, you weren't back from deployment yet. You still had a mission there, but um, everything just kind of stopped. And uh, fortunate, unfortunate, we had great leaders at the time that supported us all the way up to the top. Um, and sadly, and why I say fortunate, unfortunate, they had lost team members and they knew what that was like. Um, so we were able. It's it's sad that we've lost so many members in the war, but you know we mentioned Vietnam prior. It was way worse over other war periods, so understand that that happens. But you know, we got we got taken care of by our command and kind of ironed things out. Um, and then that was kind of the new focus of honoring them, however we can. And I'm still on that mission. So when something like that happens, as a, as civilians, 
it's real easy just to shut down. And everyone understands if you do it. But you can't really do that militarily. So, but obviously you took a little bit of an operational pause. So how long do you, do you put it on pause before you get back out there and run another mission? Especially given what you were talking about earlier, that you guys are the ones that go out and look for the mission. How does that work? So I think that it's very hard and there's no one answer there. Even amongst SF teams, there isn't. Because we talked about the varying degrees of capability and responsibility that comes with a level of intelligence. Um, and you, not everybody's the same. We're not, we're not carbon copies of each other that you can just treat everybody the same. So we were really fortunate. And I think that came back to, I, I mentioned the great recruiting of our team and just phenomenal team members, just the caliber of humans that we had in that team room um, across the board. We all rallied and knew the best thing that we could do was to go out and honor Mike and James by getting back out there um, and making as much of a difference as we could with the little time that we had left. Um, I saw numerous teams that didn't do as well. They didn't fare as well when pivotal members would get lost um, uh, in uniform. And so we knew that that was an important part of, it's one of those things where it's like having that really awful last high school football game. And if you can't get back out there, then that's just how you might remember that experience. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we got back out there and made a difference um, and that we got out there, we, we got another mission under our belt and kind of, you know, you fell off the bike, you get back up on there. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that we rallied around those fallen teammates uh, and that that was what was most important at the time and what they would have wanted. Um, and it was really easy to see that because Mike and James, I didn't know James as well. He was an attachment to the team, but Mike was one of the better leaders um, that I ever knew, despite that I was his detachment commander. Um, and he wholeheartedly, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I feel like he would have wanted us to get back out there and, and make a difference. So, You learned a lot from him, didn't you? I did. What, do you, what did you learn from him that you, that you still... I can't, I don't even know where to... You still hold on to. I don't know where to begin there, but um, probably my biggest lesson... Um, and just setting the stage here, we, we lived in this, uh, I don't even know who built it, but it was basically like a bunch of little connexes all put together. So it was like a hallway, but everybody had these like bomb shelter doors. So if a mortar came in, we'd be completely safe because you shut this and it's almost like you go airtight in there when you shut this thing. Um, and so all of us would leave our doors open a majority of the time because we were all brothers and the team is super close. Um, and so Mike, when I walked in, he was, he went there on advanced party and, uh, when I showed up, you know, most guys would have graffiti on their door. There were a couple grotesque images on, on other ones that I won't mention. But Mike had the mission set from the battalion and from higher headquarters. He had, you know, key tactical focuses, you know, things about the Green Berets on his door. They're all things that made him better as a soldier. And it was interesting because I didn't have those on my door. But I would walk by and read them on his door and appreciate them. Um, and I found out really quickly, and I think it was a product of special forces that my team sergeant and my team molded me into the leader I was. I always told them that they didn't, so I hope they don't watch this, but they did. Um, but my leadership lessons came from shoulder to shoulder um, with the people I served with, you know, my team sergeant. Uh, he taught me more than most people did in the military, if not the most. Uh, and then my team taught me. You know, you talked about the diversity of the team 
And immediately where my mind was going was what we try to do in the civilian world. And we try to force this diversity out there when it should never have to be forced. It should be looked at as why wouldn't I diversify? Why wouldn't I create as much diversity as possible? Because that makes me that much stronger as a group. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to all this going, we need to get corporate America to take a lesson from, from the special forces in that regard, because of the way y'all gather all the diversity. I never thought about that until, until we were talking about that. Yeah, it's a good, it's a great way to think of it. And that's exactly what we did bring, you know, people from different backgrounds with great skill sets and mm -hmm. bring them all together where, you know, the skill set aligns. Um, and you can really, you know, everybody talks about special operations. And I remember years ago, my dad sent me a time article in the mail and I'll never forget it. And it talked about how overutilized, uh, special operations was starting to get because they're just throwing them at every problem. But it, it really is they're a force multiplier. You could have put us anywhere and we would have helped solve any problem. So, well, I think the, uh, what it boils down to, I think I know who you're carrying, but Let's go ahead and say their name again. Tell us, who are you carrying? So I'm carrying my Master Sergeant uh, Michael B. Riley and Sergeant James Johnson. And we shall continue to uh, echo their name. So, Brent, thank you very much for spending the time. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. You've, you've enlightened me to a whole lot of things. Every time I sit down, I learn something new, and I do appreciate it. Likewise. So thank you, my brother. Thank you. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.